Our Bible reading this morning is uh, Psalm 111 and 112. That's found on page 952 in your pew Bibles. I'd like you to open it. Uh, but before we, uh, well, actually, no, I don't want you to open it, or you may open it, but the reading is, this is not starting well, the reading is printed on your, oh, somebody open the door for, there we go. There we go. Excellent. The reading is printed on an insert, okay? The reading is printed on an insert, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, and before we even get to the reading of the insert, let's, let's open our hearts and pray. Our prayer for illumination is printed in your bulletin responsibly. Let's pray that together. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your book. Lord, open my heart that your truth would be my joy and my delight. Lord, open my mind that you would show me the way to live. Guide me by your spirit in Jesus' name. So I said that our, our reading is Psalm 111 and 112, and I would like to set up that reading with, for, with quite a lot of um, introduction. So hold on to that. A reminder to you all, or, or for those of you who are visitors, uh, we are in the middle of a series on the Psalms, Psalms for the Summertime. And we've been going through different kind of Psalms, and we're finishing off that Psalm series with Psalms that are, I would call, formative Psalms, formation Psalms. These are Psalms that are specifically written to form us and strengthen us in our faith, okay? When we pray these Psalms regularly, when we let them sink into our lives, the Holy Spirit works on us in habits of faith, habits of hope, habits of love that help us to stand up to adversity in this world. So last week's formative psalm was Psalm 27. And you remember that Psalm 27 was all about our desire to see God's face. And what we said is that the habit that forms in us is worship. That's what Psalm 27 urges us to do. To gather with God's people, that's where we see his face. Psalm 112 uh, forms us in something different. Um, and when I started this series, I picked this Sunday to preach just on Psalm 112. But in the middle of the week, as I was studying it, I, was real, I realized that you, you almost can't study Psalm 112 without Psalm 111. These two psalms are meant to go together. They were almost certainly written by the same person. They're meant to be connected. They're meant to be studied and read together. And, and I want to explore that, how they're related, and explain how that forms us. That's going to be complicated, okay? This is going to be a dense sermon, so put on your hiking boots. The trail will be rocky, but hopefully at the end there will be a really good view. First of all, how are Psalm 111 and 112 related? Well, if you did open your pew Bible and look at them, you'll notice that they're almost exactly the same length, right? You look at them in your pew Bible, you see they're almost exactly the same length. They have the same number of verses. They're both 10 verses long. Not only that, those verses are almost the same length within the psalm. And there's a reason for that. Both of these are what they call alphabetic acrostic psalms. That means they have 22 poetic lines, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, okay? So 
Each line of the psalm, the first one starts with the letter Aleph, 111 and 112 start with the letter Aleph. Second line starts with Beit. Third line starts with Gimel, all the way down through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So they're both related and connected in their structure. They're also related and connected in their subject matter. Both of these psalms have a heavy emphasis on the law and on precepts. So we read the Ten Commandments this morning. And if I had to sum it up, I think both these psalms are about the path of righteousness. Now they approach that subject from different angles. Psalm 111 approaches it by showing us a picture of the Heavenly Father, the righteousness of God, His excellence, His glory. Psalm 112 shows us a righteous person, a man or a woman, and shows us that person's excellence and that person's righteousness. So one's a picture of God, one's a picture of a person, both of them having the theme of righteousness. In fact, a good way to think of these psalms is if the, psalm is, if the whole book of psalms is like a portrait gallery, these two psalms are like a, a diptych, which is a technical word for two paintings that are meant to go together. And they're hanging there, and you can look from one portrait to another, and the two portraits are meant to reinforce each other and help each other. The first picture is the picture of God the Father, and you see his righteousness as you're standing there looking at that portrait. It's overwhelming. His righteousness is so forceful. His glory is so great. He looks right at you, and, and his righteousness just overwhelms you. That's Psalm 111. Psalm 112 is a, different, a little bit different. It, there's the portrait is of a person, a righteous individual, a man or a woman. And the righteousness is quite as intense or quite as well-formed, but it's significant. And you can kind of see that this person is a chip off the old block, right? You can see that this, this child is a son or daughter of the father. Some of the same attributes that were in this portrait show up in the portrait of the child. The child isn't looking straight at you. The child, appropriately in this picture, has his eyes, her eyes, straight on the father. Okay, enough sort of set up. Let's read this psalm. And, and now you'll understand why I did this uh, as an insert. What I've done, we're going to read this responsibly, antiphonally, uh, is I've broken up all 22 lines of each psalm. So I'll read the A line of Psalm 111, and then you'll read the A line of Psalm 112. I'll read the B line of Psalm 11, you'll read the B line of Psalm 112. And we'll go all the way through. And as we do it, I think you'll see both of them, how they have the same subject matter. And more than that, I think you'll see how some of those lines line up with each other. It's the same theme show up in the same letter, if that makes sense. Okay? And in one case, it's almost exactly word for word from one psalm to the other. I'm trying to show you how they relate, and then we'll talk later about how this relation forms us. So let's read the word of the Lord together. Pray... <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart. In the council of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. 
Glorious and majestic are his deeds. And his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever. Enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. This is the word of the Lord. So I, I know that was unusual and a little stilted, but I think you can see the parallel, right? Especially strongly in, at the end of verse 4, or excuse me, at the end of verse 3, where the righteousness endures forever and the righteousness endures forever is applied both to God and to the child of God, right? And it gives you a sense that that is the theme of the poem, the path of righteousness. These psalms together are forming us to find the path of righteousness. Now, how do they do that? Because heaven knows we all want that path. Well, first of all, and, and I think most straightforwardly of all, something that maybe hardly needs to be said, but perhaps in this day and age does need to be said, these Psalms both tell us that there is such a thing as a path of righteousness. There is such a thing as a moral of order. There is such a way, thing as a way of light and a way of darkness, a way of good and a way of evil. There's a path in this world that leads to flourishing and goodness, and there's a path in this world that leads to death and destruction. So if you, if you were to pray these psalms regularly, and if you were to let these two psalms together seep into your heart, the Holy Spirit would be inoculating you against relativism. There's a, a way in this world today, um, and I, I will say, because I want to be as generous as possible about this, which I think is good-hearted and well-meant, but is ultimately wrong, which says, hey, let's just, let's just let, live and let live, man. I mean, choose your own adventure, man. If your heart wants you to tell you to do this, go do it, man. And if my heart's telling me to go do that, I'm going to do that. Follow your bliss. 
You know, choose your own adventure. You do you, and I'm going to mess with your stuff, and you don't mess with my stuff, and we'll all be fine and happy. And of course, there are songs and movies and books that, that form us in that worldview. That is not the worldview of these two psalms, I think quite self-evidently. These two psalms say that there is a way of salvation. There are commandments, there are laws, and, and, and that path is hard to find sometime, right? It's really hard to discern sometimes, and we fight about that sometimes, what the path of righteousness is. But there's no question that it's there, even though it's hard to find. Which is the second thing that the psalmist brings us to, these two psalms form in us, and that is, not only is there a path of righteousness, but we are called by these psalms to find it and follow it, right? To learn his commandments, to meditate on them, to find his ways together and try to walk this path, okay? That's the simple, most basic thing that still needs to be said that is being formed in us by these two psalms. But the second thing I want to talk about, in a way, is more interesting and more important and in some ways more difficult. These psalms don't just tell us that there is a moral order that we ought to follow. These psalms give us a clue about how to pursue the path of righteousness, the way to pursue the path of righteousness as you go through your life after profession of faith, as you go, as we all go through all our lives. How do we do this? How do we find this path? These two psalms together suggest a way, and it, this is where having both psalms together is really important. If all you had was Psalm 112, and this is kind of what I felt when I came to the psalm to preach it just by itself. If all you had with Psalm 112, here's what could happen. In Psalm 112, the psalmist paints this really attractive picture of a righteous person, a righteous man, let's say. And as you contemplate this picture, if you were to meditate on this psalm, you'd start looking at all the things about this man and you'd start to say, wow, this is... You know, he's generous to the poor. He's gracious and compassionate. Uh, when trouble comes, he, do he doesn't worry. He he's got a strong family. You start contemplating this second portrait of this righteous person. And, and what could happen, what probably wouldn't happen, is that you start to say, man, I wish I were more like that. I, I want to be more like that. That's the kind of person I want to be. He's compassionate. <sighs> you know, I know I'm not as caring as I ought to be. He's so generous, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say what I gave last year. He doesn't get anxious when trouble comes. I get so stressed out over the smallest things. I'm gonna be, I want to become more like that person. And then what happens? You start talking to yourself. I'm going to manifest my righteousness, man. I'm going to do this. Come on, Peter, be more compassionate. Come on, Peter, be more generous. Come on, Peter, you can do it. Be more righteous. We see the portrait of an admirable person and we go inside ourselves and by our will, by our effort, by our own good intentions, we say, I'm going to be a better person. We've all done it. And how does it go? Not so good. It's exhausting because the engine for all this is you're going inside yourself, it all comes from you. And it's frustrating because we all fat in our, fall flat in our face. Even though we can see the righteousness right there in that portrait, for some reason, we keep doing the same stuff over and over again. That's what could happen to us if all we had was Psalm 112. But we don't just have Psalm 112. 
we also have Psalm 111, which becomes before Psalm 112, and that's crucial. What happens when we put Psalm 111 and 112 together? Well, to put it succinctly, Psalm 111 pushes you out of your, I'm going to do this mode. It pushes you out of your mode like, like I'm going to be righteous and relying on your own will. How does it do that? Well, let's look at the, we looked at the, the portrait of, of the righteous person. Now let's turn and look at that portrait of a righteous God. We think about all the attributes that the psalmist lists that make God righteous in that portrait in Psalm 111. What do we see? Well, I think one of the most obvious things that you see in Psalm 111, one of the, the biggest attributes that lifted up is that God is a forever God. He's a forever God. He's steady. This in contrast to how chaotic the world can be and in contrast, interestingly, to the gods of the nations, right? The gods of the nations were capricious. You couldn't rely on them. They had their mood swings. In contrast, God in Psalm 111, if you look at it carefully, is very much a forever steady God. Here's just some of the phrases. His righteousness endures forever. He remembers his covenant forever. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever. He has provided redemption for his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Forever is mentioned over and over and over again. So you get this really strong picture of the steadiness of God. It comes out in the portrait. Now look at the portrait of Psalm 112, the person again. Does that attribute show up in Psalm 112? Yes, it absolutely does. Again, in the picture, not as strongly, not as magnificently, but that foreverness is there in the portrait of a human being. Their righteousness endures forever. They will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. Their name, their horn will be lifted high. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Now, while you add with Psalm 112 and you saw that steadiness in that man or that woman, what you might say to yourself is, wow, that person is a rock. They can go through anything and they can, they can just keep standing. They must have enormous internal reserves of strength. But when you read Psalm 112 with what, Psalm 111, you realize, oh no, this doesn't come from inside that person. Why is this person a forever person? Why does this person have any steadiness at all? It's because the steady, eternal God has got his hand on his shoulder. It's because the steady, eternal God of 111 is a firm foundation under his feet. That righteousness doesn't come from him at all. It's derivative. It's the same with the other qualities in both portraits. The righteous man is generous and he gives to the poor. Why is that? Does that come from his own strength? No. It's because he knows that God has given him food and been generous with him. The righteous man is compassionate and merciful. Why? Because he has received redemption from his Lord and mercy from his Lord. Now let me be clear about what I'm trying to say here. And this is the part I really want you to get. Okay? It's not just that in Psalm 111, God shows the righteous man how to live and he doesn't. It's not just that this is the example and this person follows the example. It's not like Psalm 111 gives you a set of standards and a set of rules and then by your own effort you live up to these rules. No. 
The righteousness of God in Psalm 111 is living and active, and it is moving. It is not a static set of rules. It is living and active, and it is moving, and it is moving towards you so that it can take you up in its righteousness. God isn't just gracious and compassionate in general. He's gracious and compassionate towards you. God isn't generous in general. He's generous towards you. God isn't just strong and faithful and steady in general. His, strong, his strength and his, his faithfulness is aimed at you. God is full of justice and righteousness. That is not an abstraction. That justice and righteousness is aimed at you. It is living and it is active and it's moving towards you. Of course that justice and righteousness can be summed up by rules. But the rules are not the thing. It's the energy. It's the love. It's the person. I take it for granted that every single person here is looking for righteousness. And if you're not, you should be. I take it for granted that every single person here is trying to follow God's commandments and learn his paths. We're all trying to do that together. And that's good. We should be. When we put Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 together, we realize it doesn't start with us gritting our teeth and saying, I can do this. Although commandments and moral effort are important, this doesn't happen without effort. It doesn't happen without learning rules. But that's not where we start. We start with Psalm 111. You start with this act of opening yourselves up to the goodness and living graciousness of God that has been poured out on his people and poured out on you. It doesn't start with an act of effort at all. It starts with an act of receiving a grace that has been poured out on you from the righteousness of God. That's true of us as individuals. It's true of us together as a church. Our pursuit of righteousness together does not start with us figuring out all the answers. It starts with us realizing what God has done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the beginning. And then we go on to the pursuit. This is a pattern you see all through Scripture. Right? This is not just a Psalm 111, 112 thing. Ten Commandments, which Bob read. How did, the, how did the Ten Commandments start? Does it just launch right into the rules? No. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Before any rules are offered, there's this reminder of the grace that God has already poured out for them through all the plagues and through bringing them through the desert. The righteousness of God comes first. Psalm 111 comes before Psalm 112. Paul's letters. In his letters, Paul has lots of commandments, lots of righteousness claims that we need to follow. Where do those righteousness claims and those imperative sentences go in Paul's letters? Do you know? Are they at the beginning? No, they're at the end. And almost all his letters are at the end. Paul starts with the proclamation of the gospel, what God has done for us in Jesus, and then he gets to the imperative sentences. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Romans, they all have that pattern. Paul puts Psalm 111 before Psalm 112. The Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism properly uh, expounds on the Ten Commandments, expands on them so that we understand righteousness. We should all read what the Catechism says and learn it. It's good stuff. But where in the Catechism is that placed? 
Do those commandments come at the beginning? Remember? Nope. They're all at the end, right? The catechism begins by proclaiming what God has done for us in Jesus and then puts those commandments at the end. Puts Psalm 111 before Psalm 112. I know that we are all trying hard in this world, trying to do the right thing. I know that we're trying to do that as individuals and we're all trying to do that individually, uh, together, right? We're trying to do that. And we get frustrated because it's hard and because we disagree with each other about the path and we fight about that. Praise God that his righteousness is more than a standard that we have to achieve. Thank God that his righteousness is living and active and moving towards us. How far is that righteousness willing to go? How far is that righteousness willing to move so that we might be righteous too? Well, it's willing to go all the way to the cross, of course. Because in Jesus, the righteousness of God becomes flesh and blood. In Jesus, the Lord becomes our righteousness. And Jesus goes all the way to the cross so that we may be forgiven, so that we may be cleaned, and so that we may be clothed in his righteousness and filled with his spirit. So yeah, the path is long and hard and frustrating, but do not be discouraged because the righteousness of God is moving towards you with holy intent, and his spirit is in you, and that spirit will not rest. You will be changed. This is happening. Amen. Oh Lord, as, as we think about your righteousness, we, we pray, first of all, for the discipline to want to be righteous people, um, to pursue your law, to, to live as people who search for the path of righteousness in this world and who do not give up on that search. And we pray most of all that every single day we will have a strong sense that you are the foundation under our feet and that your grace is the thing that's washing our heart clean and that your Holy Spirit is the force that's moving us along. In Christ's name we pray, amen.